Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hi, I'm Candace Hoffman, the field coordinator with LAP. I'm excited to share my conversation with Paul, one of our awesome LAP volunteers. We will be talking about his article, Somebody Dimed Me Out, which you should definitely check out after the podcast. You can find it in the show notes for today's episode. And now we'll jump right into the conversation. Paul, thanks so much for being here today. Happy to be here. So let's just dive in and start right with the title, Somebody Dimed Me Out. Do you want to explain to our listeners what happened there? Well, long, long ago in the days of pay telephones, they cost a dime. And diming somebody out was calling in the cops. Somebody went to the authorities, uh, <laughs> threw me <laughs> under the bus, you know, lied about me to the authorities. Absolutely. Said I was drunk in court. That didn't happen. It would have, but it hadn't happened yet. I was, I was lucky. There were a lot of yets that hadn't happened when I got tattled on. I listed them all in the little essay. I can't remember them all right now, but I hadn't been drunk at work or in court. I didn't keep a bottle in my drawer, but all the things that I've listed would have happened, but for the fact that I got a visit from a couple of volunteers for the the LAP program, as it was known then as the PALS program. And can you tell us about that day? I had an appointment laid on my calendar, two people, one of whom I knew as a lawyer, made an appointment to see me after my assistant had left for the day. I should have twigged something was off then, but uh, I didn't. So anyhow, these two fellas came in and sat down and said, we're from the state bar and we're here to help you. (laughs) That startled me to say the least. And of course, in my active state as an alcoholic, I was always lurking over my shoulder. I was paranoid to the point of ridiculousness. That, of course, frightened me, but I managed to avoid jumping out of the window or offering them a drink. And they said, we're lawyers and we're alcoholics and you're a lawyer and we think you might be an alcoholic. And I talked to both of them since then, and they both said we were amazed by how easily you accepted that. I guess basically I told them, I know I'm an alcoholic. I just don't know what to do about it. Mm. Um I've been worse off than I am now. I've been better off than I am now. This is this is about where I normally am and have been for many years. And I really don't know what to do. And they said, we want you to go to two AA meetings a week and plan on going in for some inpatient rehab in a little while. And I said, wait a minute. Even the Baptists only go to church twice a week. And they said, yeah, but you're worse off than most Baptists. I thought, man, I'm, I'm really in trouble. You know, this is desperate. (laughs) But that's what they said they had done. And they also said that if I didn't want to, that was okay. They were going to hang around as long as I'd let them. And then they'd leave. And what I did was up to me. Listen to them a little longer and talk to them a little longer. And finally agreed to do what they'd asked me to do because I really wanted them to get out of my client chairs and get out of my office I said, all right, send me the contract and I'll sign it. Send me the appointment for the evaluation, this local confinement facility. It was an inpatient treatment facility called the Pavilion. And they said, okay, we'll send you all that. And then we want you to go down there and have that assessment. 
I finally got them out of my office and went home and my wife asked me, do you want a drink? And I said, my God, yes, but I'm not going to have one. And she said, well, why not? I said, well, these two guys came to see me. I don't think I, I ought to drink anymore. She said, you mean never? And I said, please don't say that word, that never word, but uh, not right now. Anyway, I stopped. It was always really difficult. Most eventually it turned out to be futile the times I stopped before, because even with a big book and one AA meeting under my belt, which had happened years ago, I wasn't able to, to manage it by myself. And your listeners might want to know what happened when I white knuckled. I'd be glad to describe that experience. How is this time stopping different than any other time? Well, at the beginning, it was the same. I was frightened and angry. I got angrier and angrier. I really didn't think I could do it. I'd never been able to do it before. I knew I needed to. It was going to kill me if I drank. And as far as I could tell, it was going to kill me if I didn't drink, which is a a rotten place to be. But what finally happened that was different this time, people had told me, give AA another try. I was finally so frightened and so angry, restless, irritable, and discontented, cubed, that I, I said, all right, I've heard there's a good meeting at this location, not too far from here, but not too nearby either. I don't know anybody out in that neck of the woods. I better get out. What it was like was the people were very, very welcoming. We did our first go around and I didn't know enough to tell them that it was my first meeting. I introduced myself as an alcoholic for the first time out loud in a room full of people. Things got easier. One of the things that the guys had said I needed to do was get a sponsor. Listened in meetings for a while and picked out a guy who worked in a prison. (laughs) I knew lots of people who worked in prisons because I did criminal defense law. And he sounded like he knew what he was talking about to me. And that was 24 years ago. And he's still my sponsor. So, Wow. When you talk about being in the first stage and you're white knuckling it and you're fearful and angry. How did entering the program and opening up, how did it transform that fear and anger? What it really did, I think, was teach me what I was responsible for and what I wasn't responsible for. So much of my feelings of powerlessness about life in general seemed to result from wanting to control things that I had no business fooling with. A while later into it, I discovered that while I was drinking, control had always been my idea of the solution. Control the people around me, control the events around me, control the amount I drank. That was always the solution. Early on, the program, the people in the rooms taught me that my need for control was the problem. And what I needed to learn to do, let go of a lot of that and let things unfold. I had to trust. That was tricky. I gave up trusting anybody in the world but me, and I couldn't trust me not to drink. Prove that over and over and over again. So early sobriety was about learning to trust again, at least in the small things. And these people seemed to know what they were talking about. Yeah. Speaking of trust, and I know it sounds like yourself included, that a lot of lawyers have a hard time believing that the LAT program is completely confidential. What was your experience with that? Well, those two guys came in to see me one time. 
one of them would call me up about every month or so just to see how I was doing. And they stayed out of, of my life completely as long as they figured I was telling them the truth, which I was. I was going to plenty of meetings and I went to the, the inpatient thing that they asked me to go. And I went because it worked. In the little article, I talk about still not knowing who dropped the dime. I have a suspicion. I'm certain that there's no leak between LAP and the disciplinary side of the bar. You know, LAP's never going to say anything bad about a client to the bar because they can't. They're in an attorney-client relationship with each one of us. It's an ethical breach for them to do that, and they don't. The disciplinary side cannot access the information that the LAP has, not without the permission of the client. And the reason I know that is because I've tried to find out about other people. And (laughs) the the lap has shut me down. Yeah, that's as it should be. I don't really have any qualms about that. Of course, I got to admit that I was at a point where everybody in the world, in my world, knew I had a problem. I was past a concern that many of us may have about our reputations. I wasn't going to have a practice left. That's kind of a backwards way of thinking, that concern about reputation when my behavior was so damaging, but it's typical of the way active alcoholics think, I believe. We're looking at life through the wrong end of the telescope. Indeed. And if you could ever find out who dropped the dime on you, (laughs) if you could, what would you want to tell them? I'd say, I'd say thanks for giving me a new lease on life. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to pass this along to other people. Thank you for doing what was in your best interest as well as mine on that particular day, because it's been of great benefit to not just me, but to everybody I come in contact with. I'm not a perfect person. I never will be, but I'm a much different person, a much happier person. And people tell me I'm a much easier person to live with, which is good because, you know, I want to stay married. I want to, I want to keep, I want to keep my family, all those not yet. I mean, they could still happen. And why do you say that? Why do you say they could still happen? I believe that my disease is out in the hall doing push-ups all the time I'm in recovery. I, I don't think that it's, it's gone. I think that if I behave the way I've been taught to behave, it'll stay in remission. But if I stop doing the things that work, if I stop, it will come back and it will be worse. That's truly a hypothesis I don't want to test because the greatest gift of all has been the removal of the desire for alcohol. It's made the program, the work that's been done, the work that I've been allowed to do, it's made me indifferent to alcohol by and large. You know, like any alcoholic, I still think about drinking, but it passes. That's why I think it's important to remember that this is a daily gift. You know, this is the present, which is one of my favorite words in English, by the way, because it means gift and it means now. (laughs) I love that. And thank you for sharing that with us. You talked about accepting the facts was really important to your recovery. Why is that? When we share our stories, when we talk about what happened to us, the people in the room who are newer, who are still learning, are hearing what happened to them. And every time I listen to somebody tell their story, I heard parts of mine. So I knew that they were speaking from experience and their experience was something I'd shared. And I didn't have to test that part of it. I I just had to accept it. And it helped a lot to realize that I wasn't alone, nowhere near alone. 
that what I had thought was unique was far from it. The thing that was going to kill me was a continuing belief in my own uniqueness, that I was, that I was terminally unique. Well, I'm not. I'm just a garden variety alcoholic who's been fortunate enough to get in recovery. It's incredible how especially lawyer alcoholics can work really hard to put on that facade. But like you shared on your story, you, you didn't think it was any big shock to anyone no. that you worked with. No, not at all. It runs in my family. It runs in our profession. It runs in, shoot, my ethnicity. I call what I have, I should say, the Irish virus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I grew up in the military and that was, you know, it was an accepted part of the culture. And my poor dad died of my disease. And I, I got to say, watching him die of my disease was sobering, to say the least. But did it get you sober? It helped. It definitely helped. A lot of things came together at one time. I had a new marriage, a new stepdaughter. My dad died of this disease. And the guys from LAP came to see me. And that all happened in about two months. Wow. In, in the spring and summer of 1997. So all those, the stars aligned, everything coalesced. And I guess that's what it took. That's an incredibly <laughs> powerful story. You've done a lot of good work to ensure your recovery is continuing. Well, the truth is, I don't want to go back there. You know, I don't think it's going to be one bit different. In fact, I think it'll be worse. Bottom line is, as I couldn't have gotten sober or stayed sober by myself. Well, I certainly appreciate you sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. I think that is really helpful for other people to hear exactly what you went through, what happened, and where you are now, what it's given to your life. I hope we get to talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Look forward to it and take care. Thank you for joining us at the Sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two. Subscribe to our newsletter and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company. 